This is Chapter 15 of the WCBS 880 Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Eyes of the World, Robert Kappa, Gerda Taro, and the Invention of Modern Photojournalism tells the story of two photographers who in the 1930s became the first people to capture modern warfare on film. Our Pat Farnack spoke with authors Mark Aronson and Marina Budos about the groundbreaking duo. How did you come to tell their stories and why do you think they were so important to the invention of photojournalism? Well, I'll just begin because for me, I grew up with Life magazine and Look magazine mm. and loving it. You know, I couldn't wait every week when it would come in the door, you know, and I would page through it. And so I always followed photojournalism, and little did I know, behind that story were these very young photojournalists. And when I learned about Gerda Taro, who was a young woman, and indeed the first woman war photographer who picked up this little camera, then I was really hooked on this story. I think for me there were two sides. One is they were a couple, a couple mm-hmm. who were true artistic equals. And Marina and I are a couple who are artistic equals. So it was fascinating to research and our kind of um, ancestors in a way. Mm-hmm. The other side is I grew up among people for whom the Spanish Civil War, something that's often forgotten now, was still quite resonant. And so a chance to go back and visit that time period was quite exciting for me. I was so interested that uh, Robert Kappa and uh, Gerda Taro really reinvented themselves. They were somebody else <laughs> before they became Robert Kappa and Gerda Taro. Absolutely. And Robert Kappa, for many, has become an icon. They all know him as sort of the famous swaggering war journalist and so forth. But really, he was a scruffy immigrant. And we were just saying today that it's so resonant to literally today because the French elections just happened mm-hmm. and France is kind of on an edge. It's teetering on an edge. And that's exactly where he was in the 30s, right? He was in France, an immigrant. And so how were they going to reinvent themselves? They were refugees. They had to find a way to make a living. They also had to reinvent themselves in terms of their names. Um, They did it to sort of be a little more glamorous, but also because of rising anti-Semitism in Europe. He was Andre Friedman. She was Goethe Porel. And they pretended that he, that she was uh, selling the photos of this rich American photographer, <laughs> Robert Capa, whose name was taken from the film director, mm-hmm. Frank Capra. Uh, and that was a way to position themselves uh, in, in France. People do that in broadcasting, though, all the time. And, and well, and of course, uh, writers, you become somebody else, you use a different name, uh, a more exciting name, maybe, in your mind. And so it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, they really had to hustle. If you think about it, here you were, these refugees in Paris. Paris is in the Depression. The French people don't want immigrants taking jobs. Mm. There's plenty of anti-Semitism. There was anti-German feeling, and they spoke German. And so they became someone else to try to get a toehold. And they rubbed elbows with uh, a a lot of people who uh, went on to great fame Mm -hmm. and fortune, Ernest Hemingway and... That's right. That's right. Well, you know, the thing about the Spanish Civil War is it attracted intellectuals and artists from and writers from all over the world. It really was a kind of international um, call 
to young people who were of the left or were at least anti-fascist. And so, you know, people like Hemingway, all Langston Hughes, all these people cared about this fight. So, yes, he was. Qu- they were quickly sort of rubbing elbows with New York Times correspondents and Ernest Hemingway and so forth, all of whom wanted to tell this story. You mentioned fascism, and uh, that certainly resonates with us today, doesn't it? Yes, writing this book in the past two years during the whole period of our election and Brexit and now the French election and the Syrian refugee crisis, we really kept feeling as if we were seeing the past in the present and the present in the past. Um, That moment of rising populism, rising fascism, demagogic leaders, anti-immigrant sentiment of the 30s so echoing and resonant of of the present. The changing technology of, of, of cameras and photography was also changing how people got their news. Uh, with the, the newsreels before the movies and uh, with uh, such bold uh, shots that you feature in your book. Yeah, I mean, part of what happened is, you know, it was a perfect storm of all these different cultural forces that were happening. News magazines were incredibly popular and getting increasingly popular. So, for instance, and and as you said, they did these gorgeous spreads, these really artistically fascinating spreads at that time that were something like film on the page. That's, in a sense, what they were creating. They were, were creating collage and sequencing. During this time, actually, in November 1936, life was created. Life was created because they saw what was happening in Europe, where everybody was sort of gobbling up these news magazines. So they created Life magazine, which sold out, I think it was about half a million copies in its first edition. I remember getting Life magazine as a kid in the mail, as you did. Exactly. In a way, if you think of the present, we feel we get so much instant visual news, you know, on our devices in every which way. They were experiencing that, except it was the newsreel before the film, as you mentioned, or weekly, this news magazine that brought the world into your kitchen as never before. And it links exactly to what you said, because there were new cameras, because you had this light, quick camera. And if you had people like Robert Kappa and Gerda Taro who would thrust themselves into the action to be an inch away from whatever was happening, it meant that you would have coming to you and images of people who lost their homes a week ago, whose buildings were bombed a week ago, an orphan child with her uh, dolls in a center uh, a week ago. No one had had this kind of information before now flooding into them. Let's talk briefly about some of uh, the images that appear in your book. Uh, The first one, I think it's uh, in the very beginning of the book, um, where uh, Robert Kappa shoots uh, D-Day. Yeah, so this is what he's famously known for. Um, It's one of the things he's famously known for. But he was the photographer that went in with the first wave that went to Normandy on D-Day. And those very blurred images that were taken were actually inspiration for Steven Spielberg's opening scene for Saving Private Ryan. So, you know, these are iconic images, but it was very... By this time, he's a famous photographer, right? Um, 
And it was very brave of him. I mean, he went in. He was the first one to go in with the actual wave. Uh, also, uh, some of the uh, very intimate uh, photos of a, a refugee child eating soup. That right. one, it, you can't tear your eyes away from it. Or some of these other refugees, I think you mentioned in Malaga, mm-hmm. uh, some of those images are, are searing. Well, yeah, the refugee child eating soup photo was actually taken by Gerda Taro. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Malaga photos are fascinating because there are several instances in which each of them took the same photo, the same moment. And so one thing we try to explore in the book was what was it like as a couple to have someone off taking his or her own shots, but of the same moment, almost seeing the same scene uh, differently. You know, Kappa said something kind of wonderful and important. He said, if your photos aren't good enough, you aren't close enough. And he meant that in one sense, they would risk everything. He was in the water with the men, with the bullets flying in, at D-Day, but he also meant emotionally close enough. You haven't risked connecting with the people uh, in that circumstance. I couldn't believe, as you mentioned, he was in the first wave. I mean, he didn't wait until maybe the fifth or no. That was typical Kappa. I mean, Kappa always had an incredible restless energy, and he was really a daredevil. Though on inside, he was terrified. Mm. But from the get-go, when he was a young photojournalists, they would talk about him shimmying up, you know, light poles, and he was always sort of maneuvering around or pushing his way in. So he was all action and quite, you know, quite daring in a sense. So yes, that was that was who he was as a photographer. Today we live in the era of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and fake news. <laughs> was there such a thing as fake news in uh, Kappa and Taro's time? Very much so, in uh, in the sense that, or from our point of view, there was because they did it, they did accept that you could stage a shot. So if a battle happened a week ago and you wanted the world to know about it, and the battle's over, you could get a bunch of soldiers to reenact the what had happened, and and so that was it wasn't considered fake. But it was certainly not a record of what you were saying it was. Yeah, I mean, I would add those beautiful spreads that we're talking about mm-hmm. that they would do. In fact, sometimes you would have an image of something, but it wasn't actually what was being reported, like a battle, but it wasn't actually the battle that the, that the article mm-hmm. was about. Now, th- that was common practice. They were using collage techniques. It was not fully documentary, although you start to see it becoming really documentary by World War II, and Kappa is exactly following. But So this was in a period where it was almost like artistic creation, and you could say there was a truth to it. There definitely was a truth about war, a truth of what people were, you know, there was a nugget of truth in what they were going through. But they were playing with these elements. Well, one of his most uh, controversial and probably famous, what is it, the fallen soldier? The falling soldier. soldier. Yeah. Tell me about that. Was that that, staged? We don't know. We don't know. I mean, that is one of the most famous photos ever taken anywhere, and it is said to be a soldier on the moment of death as as the bullet enters him. there, in more recent years, controversy has arisen because we have figured out exactly where it was taken, and there is no record of a battle on that date. 
And so people have raised the question, could it have been a stage shot? Because we know they did that. Um, however, our sense is most likely, though we can never prove it, that they were sort of experimenting, playing, and a soldier kind of popped up and was hit by a sniper. But we will have to leave it as ambiguous. We cannot know for sure what took place in that shot. The only thing I would add is Kappa was determined to be as close as possible to the action as at D-Day. So he very likely could have gotten that shot if he didn't at that moment. It looks so real because the feet are off the ground in such a way, uh, I have difficulty imagining it staged. Yes, and um, one of the analysis that was done had to do with a doctor, a forensic doctor Mm. looking at it, who said that, in fact, just the position of the hands is a man who, in fact, is at the moment of death. So that's, that's on the side of saying this is very real, right? Mm-hmm. And that's part of the argument. You've written this book for aimed at young adults. Uh, what kind of reaction have you gotten so far to the book? Well, we, the reactions have been, I have to say, marvelous. And people have, have really appreciated the book. We actually tried to write it for a broader audience. We wanted to make it accessible mm-hmm. to young adults, but really of value to, to any age, to adults as well. The reception has been quite marvelous because we had an opportunity in the book, which is unique. We were able to write a fully narrative book with 200 images. So we were able to interplay text and image with sort of absolute freedom. And I think a lot of people who come to the book appreciate that they get both. They get the words and they get to kind of savor the images almost as a newsreel. Which is which is true to the young adult world allows you to do that in, in some sense having um, – you know, pictures guiding the text as much. And that's actually not something you can do in adult books. So we had this unique opportunity to almost recreate what they were doing with the world they were a part of, where text and image are working together. I could actually see this book as part of a, um, they have civics classes anymore, (laughs) social studies class or or a uh, journalism class. Um, or a, an English class where you talk about uh, images and how I, I could see it in, in, uh, in yeah, a high school curriculum. That was partly our, our thinking. And also they get to learn about the Spanish Civil War. But yes, very much. We, it's also, you know, the theme of it is bearing witness, right? Mm-hmm. So this notion of when, when there are these major conflicts, what does it mean to bear witness? Because really, in some sense, they were the first to bear witness through the camera. And that was really the message we wanted to leave all readers with. We now all have capacity to record, whether orally or visually, our world around us and to share what we see. And in some ways, this book, though it has great elements of tragedy and personal and social pain, we end with this sort of hopeful idea of bearing witness, using your technology to be, as the title of the book, the eyes of the world. We've been talking with Mark Aronson and Marina Butos, Eyes of the World, Robert Kappa and Gerda Taro, and the invention of modern photojournalism. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. In David Swinson's crime song, an ex-DC cop with a bad drug habit finds himself connected to more than one drug-related murder. 
And it turns out his addiction isn't the only thing messing with his life. Your book, Crime Song, was a tough one to read, I'm not going to lie. It's intense in its portrayal of the drug world, its propensity for violence, and the sad stories of people who get caught up in it. Not to mention the fact that the main character, Frank Marr, who despite trying to stay off the radar, finds himself at the center of quite a few of these violent crimes. So tell us a little bit more. Um, well, Crime Song is a, con- a continuation. It's a, a second in a trilogy. Um, the first one was The Second Girl. And in Crime Song, um, without giving up too much, I mean, he um, is looking into his nephew for for uh, his aunt. And his nephew has fallen into the, um, with the wrong crowd. And um, while investigating him, I mean, everything just turns really bad, really ugly. And, um, but a lot of it is about, about the characters, like you said, you know, the characters that he's involved with and, and in the situations these characters get caught up in. Um, there is a, a mystery, you know, to it, obviously, because of the, of the of death, but it's mostly a, a character-driven novel. And you don't really want to like Mar because of his drug habit, and yet you can't, <laughs> <laughs> you can't help but root for him. Yeah, it's, odd. it's really odd, you know, how many people say that. And, you know, uh, I really, when I was writing The Second Girl, um, I mean, Frank Mar was in my head for so long. And I loved the idea of this character that you had. And it just was a natural progression. You know, he just, I think because I loved him. So I think that showed, and he's so outside of me as well. Um, And I loved him so much. I think that that just, you know, came across and made him a little bit likable. Um, I've actually, in in my work, I'm a retired police detective. I've, encountered uh, not retired you know bad cops but um addicts you know who are very very likable but do bad things you know i'm not talking about violent because uh, you don't want you know th- those are different people but i mean burglarized homes and things like that which are bad things but you know these are fallen likable people you know that just you know get caught up in you know, and, and, and an addiction that they can't control. And and that, that applies not only to Mar, but also to Biddy in this book. Yeah, more so to Biddy. I mean, um, the reason I chose cocaine for for Frank Marr is that is a, is a, a bad drug, <laughs> but it's also a drug that you can easily, more easily conceal uh, with long, uh, in long time, uh, long term usage. Crack cocaine, not not so much. I mean, crack is 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 a beast, and um, you really can't hide it. I mean, it gets to a point where you smell it on the person's body, and um, you just see it in their face. And um, so, Biddy um, is sort of a counter to Mar, but he's a lot lot worse off. And you mentioned you're a, an ex DC detective. Uh, besides the characters that you or the people that you came across in that line of work. How much is, of your job is reflected in this book and also the cops we meet in the book? I don't think I, I could have written it if I had not gone through, you know, um, years on the department, meeting people and, you know, investigating and, and debriefing and interviewing, you know, defendants and suspects and people like that. But the detectives, um, that is 
authentic. I, I think, I mean, a lot of them, there are, there are good, good ones and there are bad ones. And so there's, I try to stay, you know, authentic to the police procedural and to the way of life. But at the same time, that, that is what Frank Moore did for me as well is, um, because I'm a, a man of procedure and you know police procedure, and I'm, I'm the type of guy you don't want to sit and watch some TV show with. Um, <laughs> like I won't mention any certain TV shows, but you know, like to, you know, take your finger off the trigger, you tope or you right. Know, I think we know the ones evidence. you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, don't 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 taste that narcotic to see if it's cocaine. You, know, you just don't do that kind of stuff. So I mean, I, I stayed true to the procedure. But Frank Marr also freed me from that procedure because he he, he breaks rules, and and there are, yeah of course there are cops that break rules, but um you know they're caught and they're you know <laughs> they're um, either prosecuted or you know usually prosecuted. So you get to live a little bit vicariously through Frank Marr. Yeah, I mean, you sometimes wish that you could take that teenager by the scruff of the neck and <laughs> shove him up against the wall because he's doing such stupid things, you know and um. But you can't. Obviously, you can't do that. You have to have a lot of self-control um, as a real police officer. So Frank uh, allows me that, you know, because there were a lot of uh, dopey teenagers who were just going stupid that I, I would have loved to, you know, just uh, shove up against a wall, you know, like they do on TV. So another facet of Mars character is this extensive and also eclectic record collection that plays a role in this book. Mm. Now, I know you have a music background. Do you have the same kind of taste in music as your main character? Oh, most definitely. Um, I come from, prior to becoming a cop, I was a concert promoter in the 80s and opened up Long Beach, California to the alternative and punk scene. Um, I had two venues there. One was Fender's Ballroom and the other was Bogart's Nightclub. And Fender's was uh, about 1,500 people and everyone from the Red Hot Chili Peppers to, you know, uh, some major punk acts, you know, came through there. And Bogarts was more the equivalent of, like, um, in New York, it would have been the equivalent of a larger CBGBs or, you know, DC at the 930 Club or something like that. And we had everyone from Nick Cave to, you know, uh, the Pixies throwing music, uh, throwing muses, a lot, a lot of great bands. So, yeah, I'm into Fugazi, you know, very much. I grew up in DC. Well, my father was in the foreign service, so between countries, we were always in D.C. I wasn't, I gave, I made him younger than me, so he was an, a product of the 80s. So he would have been involved in that whole scene in Washington, D.C. at Fort Reno when Fugazi would play and stuff like that. For me, it was um, more the late 70s, and Fort Reno was still going on, but it was uh, on, uh, punk was just merging and just starting to happen in D.C. around 77, 78. It sounds like you, was, you have a great background there for a, for another trilogy in the future. I, I actually would love to um, to work in something you know that that was that, that takes place in the eighties with a you know with with a cop involved in the punk scene somehow. I'm reading this great book right now by a, a guy named Dietrich Kaitelis, and I hope it pronounces last name right it's not out yet but it's called uh, zero avenue and he's a canadian writer and he's done something really cool with um the the toronto scene in like 78 79 with when, you know like doa and all those punk bands were around and the clubs were you know just like s- dirty stinky 
to get in to go see uh, some punk band. But he rapped the whole punk movement in the late 70s, starting in Toronto and all that, with a with the whole uh, crime fiction story. And it's, it's it's really cool. I'd like to do something a little different, you know, like if a, in the 80s, maybe use Bogarts as a backdrop or something like that. But yeah, that'd be fun, too. You mentioned that, that this is the second in a trilogy. So Mars story isn't over yet. No, I mean, but there's only so far you can take them. I mean, so that's why I thought of a trilogy. And because you really, I mean, you have to look at it like the first book. Um, the second book is like the arc. I mean, where he's he's challenged and he does he does fall, you know, and um, and, and there, I'm I believe in you know uh, redemption and all that. So I, I'm hoping, you know, if he doesn't die, I'm hoping he has redemption. Um, and so the third book is called Mouth of the River, and I'm currently writing that. Um, but he's either going to have to get sober or, or totally crash, you know. That's where we close the book on this chapter of the WCBS 880 Author Talks podcast. We want to know what you think. Email us at books at WCBS880.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.